Hello. I'm Amelia at the British Ecological Society, and today, as part of our series for Black History Month, celebrating the work of black ecologists around the world, I'm speaking to Reuben Fakoya Brooks. Reuben is a PhD student of human behavioural ecology at University College London and has worked as both a researcher and a photographer. In addition to this, he founded the Racial and Ethnic Ecology and Diversity, or REED, network here at the BES, which he also chaired. Ruben, hello and welcome. It's a pleasure to speak to you today. How are you? Hi, Amelia. Yeah, I'm good. Um, you know, getting a bit cold, but other than that, it's, 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 it's great, actually. I'm, I'm in a good place. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear you're well. So my first question for you today, Ruben, is how would you describe your journey in academia and how did you come to study ecology? Um, so I've always had an interest in the natural world. I think ever, I think ever since I saw like the whale tail flukes when I was about like five years old um, on the original Blue Planet. Like, so it's not the, the newest ones. This was back in the day, which may be showing some signs of my age. But um, yeah, I remember watching it on video cassette and being amazed by it, by the scale of an animal and animals and animals that could get to that size. And obviously growing up in um, inner London, I wasn't really exposed to that. Mm-hmm. And um, my grandma, who is a self-proclaimed botanist, is very into her flowers, really good Latin names. She lives in a council house in Peckham, but she, even though her garden is concrete, she used to have like, all of these big pots of plants, lots, it was like a jungle. And I think from that, as well as like my dad and mum really being enthusiastic, give me like science equipment when I was younger and allowing me to be very inquisitive mm. in gardens that kind of like helped with that progress in terms of like love and passion but then it got lost I think I'm very sporty um when you're a boy and you go to a boys school you get like steered into a certain direction even if even, even if you are quite mm. academic um you still get steered on that path and then I think when it came to choosing my my A-level subjects I had I just I, I, it's, it's it's odd it's an odd time um where you have you almost like are put onto a crossroads quite quickly where I feel like you're not necessarily yeah ne- not necessarily mature enough to make a decision like that but I think I went back to the root of what I like doing or what I like studying what I was good at too mm-hmm. and um it fell to zoology I was like, I like animals I like sciences I don't really see myself being a vet because I did my little work experience in the zoo and it's like, oh my God, cleaning up animal poo is not, <laughs> 70% of the time is not the career path I kind of see myself down, um, even though I like interacting with the animals and towards the end of the day. Um, I like actually studying them and learning about them and zoology was a path mm-hmm. or route into that. When you decided that you were going to do a zoology degree, did you have an idea about what you wanted to do afterwards? Or was it just that you made this decision based on, you know, I really enjoyed this subject and I'm going to follow what I like doing? Oh, yeah, no, I I had no idea. Um, I'm very much, uh, it's actually, uh, I envision myself mm-hmm. maybe being like an academic mm-hmm. or like a, prof- I don't know. I, I tried, I, but I didn't. I just, I, I, if I was being brutally honest, I had no idea what a zoology degree would lead to. Um, I was trying to search what jobs you can get as being a zoologist and was very 
there was no information back then really it was just like yeah there's no information <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be lying to you being a 17 year old student and searching on google it was, the information was very sparse um so yeah i, I was very much you know what? i'm still gonna yeah. do it i really like it and i'll figure it out later and that, that approach is like quite a privileged approach i would say but also quite a naive approach mm -hmm. to it at the same time i think how i approached it to i always gave myself backups even with in the zoology degree um so i i didn't i was very particular with the modules i chose so i don't do anything with genetics but i knew the jobs that i was searching for before university and also during university was like where all of my friends especially at Nottingham university people come in and and they try and recruit students from consultancy firms to law to business and i saw nothing really to do with science and i was trying to find anything to do with science mm -hmm. anything to do with life sciences in this pharmaceutical sector and i spoke to someone and like oh it's more genetics-y more genetics based and yeah. obviously zoology didn't necessarily have that um heavy emphasis of mm -hmm. genetics so i i, I kind of which i loved about nottingham you could choose your modules and i just specifically chose a lot of genetics based modules i think my master's thesis was on phylogenetic tree building and I made myself as um, employable as possible and I think with me I've always had a backup and always my parents always said you always have to have a backup always have a backup because sometimes what the thing in which you want to do something that you may not be able to do. So as we've mentioned um, you're currently studying for a PhD in human behavioural ecology and um, what does this involve and what research are you doing at the moment? So yeah human behavioural ecology is effectively looking at explaining human behavior and um from an ecological perspective but also um explaining why asking why ultimate questions as to and, and to, to an extent mechanisms behind said behaviors and why said behavior um may be evolution beneficial uh, lead to uh, yeah. uh, a particular given human society uh, population, uh, cultural group, um, being fitter, displaying that um, behaviour. And it's, a kind of, it's basically kind of attributing the same kind of ecological theory that we applied to animal species, to animal populations, just to human populations and seeing humans from that perspective. And it, yeah. I like to envision a Venn diagram and you have three Venn diagrams. You have anthropology in one to the top left. You have um, zoology, ecology to the bottom. And then you have psychology up there. And then maybe you have economics. And again, too, economics love inserting themselves into things. So there's there's a branch of economics too, Venn diagram economics, which looks at behavioral economics that coincidentally I'm using. So I'm looking at competition. I'm looking at why we compete and how we compete. Mm -hmm. specifically mm. towards the same sex and how the environment may inform and influence our behavior in terms of competition and my interests are um, specifically actually in um, female to female competition because it stemmed from my experience in my previous job in psychological research where I worked with mothers and perinatal mental illness which is postnatal depression anxiety mothers and fathers 
as and I was in mm-hmm. settings that had a lot of women conversing and speaking. I saw a lot of gossiping and rival derogation, which in psychological literature uh, are examples of female competition. And um, I was always curious about that to an extent. And I was like, oh, is there an evolutionary explanation? And um, it led me down contracting proposal, shipping it around. I wanted to work at the University of Kent. So I did it the very old fashioned way where I wrote my whole research proposal, did the research, did the lit review myself to an extent and whilst working and my old mm-hmm. job, which I love, um, was for the NHS, I was a researcher for the NHS and um, they very much promoted this self-development and allowed me to do that and helped me, encouraged me to do that. And that's a really nice sort of UCL. Liked the project, liked my enthusiasm, and then applied for some funding, and I got it, which was really great. And yeah, so that was the, my research is that looking at competition, looking at sex mm-hmm. ratio, so and looking at resource availability. Is there quite a pronounced difference about how you conduct your research when it's with human participants um, compared to maybe when you're using animal data or you know surveys and things like that? How does it work? Oh, definitely. Um, and that's where psychology comes in. So I think as a zoologist, like, okay, using my uh, research as an example, um, if I was a zoologist and I was looking at sex ratio effects on competition and I was looking at a particular bird species, I could just take the males out of a particular system, and look at how maybe the females may behave and then put the males back in and see how they behave after. So imagine I did that with humans though. I went to a particular town in let's say Kent and I gave a letter on notice. It's like, okay, um, 50% of the men are gonna have to leave. <laughs> I just wanna subscribe. And then you just ship them out and then look at how women behave in it for the next six to eight months. Do what's mm-hmm. like ship them back in and then do a bit of post study. You it's unethical to do experiments like that. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of ethical things you have to consider and it's very very um stringent um process where you before you come up to you think come up with a theory um mm-hmm. level hypotheses aims objectives and you have to write a protocol and the protocol yeah. is uh effectively like this blueprint that you have to use to make sure and adhere to they send to the ethics board and you have a board a panel of scientists that determine mm-hmm. if it's low risk or high risk if it's high risk you go down one path it's low risk you go down another path and they scrutinize it the data analysis yes. how the data has been handled how the methodology and um, there's a similar processes in um, zoology and ecology but it's just not as vigorous and yeah um, then again you once you obviously work in human participants, they can speak to you. So you have that that's a consideration too. So you can use that as a as an avenue to get more data, which is a slight advantage, but also a disadvantage because those words and the, the replies may hurt, you know, and it may be quite difficult um yeah. with. And uh there are a lot of different things that you have to consider. And it's mm-hmm. funny, let's say in human behavioural ecology there's, of, there's almost like this cognitive dissonance to an extent of a lot of science that you have to have where you start to see humans objectively 
yeah. oh, you refer to humans or people like as like I'm doing as humans or like human females or human males as you would do with like an other species of animal. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, my protocol, you have to I change everything from human females to women or to yeah. just make it more palatable and, and, and to a lay person and also to the ethics board that you're, what you're doing is ethical. Um, your justifications too. When you're working with humans, they have to be more social, uh, political, um, um, uh, um, the, not the political, but the policy-based uh, yeah. advantages and other stuff um, that you just have to consider and the wider grand scheme effects too of this research that may influence humans and such, etc. Um, so I think that's that's the biggest difference and the things that you just have to consider. Just you just have to be a bit more yeah. thoughtful. I used to hate when people would ask me this about my undergraduate. So apologies, but do you have a plan for what you want to do after you finished your PhD? Do you know what? Because I've just I've just gone into my second year. Uh-huh. I hadn't, so I was so like, for the whole of last year, I was like, oh my god, I'm doing a PhD. Oh my god, I'm doing a PhD. I'm doing a PhD. <laughs> yeah. Now there's, like, I'm over that. I'm getting over that. Sometimes I find myself like, oh my god, this time last year, I was like, I had no idea what I'm doing, and now I'm like, trying to do my first, fin- trying to finalize my first experiment, uh, mm-hmm. trying to think about how this thesis is gonna look, etc. Yeah. And um, now those thoughts are coming to my mind. Like, okay, what am I actually going to be doing? Um, do I want to stay in academia? Because I was fortunate enough that I've done things a bit of reverse. So I skipped the PhD and went straight into a job that maybe required a PhD. So a lot of mm-hmm. my colleagues had PhDs or let's say I was working and then someone who wanted some experience had just finally like, finished their PhD and just submitted and I was like, I felt a bit of a bit of impossible. I was like, oh, wow, I've been here for like a year. And uh, yeah. speaking with you as a person who's doing a pseudo PhD, and that was almost like my trial PhD, seeing the beginning of a project, um, mm-hmm. thinking of the aims, objectives, writing a protocol, collecting data, and then yeah. leaving just before the write-up. And it was, it was interesting, the whole process, going to conferences, being cross EU cross border meetings with different academics, um, explaining your research to individuals multiple times, presentations, all of that, I'm very familiar with, and yeah. I realised made I think I made that decision from a, a very uh, old and uh, impactful colleague, um, so I called Marcus, um, who had done a PhD, and he, he basically said. I was like, is it worth doing? Because I didn't envision myself doing it. It's like, oh, it's a long it's a whole process. Mm. A little return, what am I going to get from it? And he was like, well, it was long and hard and it fetch- it's going to affect your mental health. But every so often, when I look at my mental piece and I see my thesis, I smile. And it's this sense of accomplishment. Yeah. And sometimes that's what life is. Like, life's too short. Um, if you can do something and feel like it's a big accomplishment do it strive for it like mm-hmm. there's no right or wrong ways to live your life but by yeah. doing it or doing it in a way in which makes you happy is the right way I, I would say mm-hmm. and um I think that's 
led me to a PhD, but also afterwards, I may think it solidified the decision of maybe seeing myself in academia, maybe mm -hmm. getting to um, seeing how long I can stay in academia because academia at the moment is a bit. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, I I part I I see myself setting up a department, human behavioral ecology department, maybe going to Africa, um, going back to Nigeria, mm -hmm. um, Jamaica. These are my roots. Yeah. And um, just joining the academic department there, if they don't have a, a hub already, helping that set that up yeah. with a level of expertise. Um, because I feel like there's a lot of brain drain from those areas of the world. Um, and I'm very aware that it's like kind of like pseudo colonialist mentality, like going to a place, oh, I'm just and kind of kicking out anyone who's trying to do the same thing. So I'll be very aware of that. and. Mm -hmm. trying to make collaborations and build a hub in a different yeah. space but I think I'm definitely doing that I think uh, my supervisor had done that with UCL she is the founder of human behavior ecology in Europe but also in yeah. the UK realistically mm -hmm. um, and seeing her do that I was just like in awe by of that I was like, oh wow we can yeah. do that that's great that's scary to do she went oh, she faced a lot of hurdles but there's something that I envision myself doing this is acceptance that there's this well this is elitism that's just like the west mm -hmm. and uk academic institutions have just yeah become so comfortable having and i think like that needs to be shared and spread around because there's no point harboring that mm -hmm. and centralizing that i guess it's easier yeah. but you're prevent people who may be limited by financial means other means and, and i think i just like to maybe remedy that to an extent but yeah. also part of me is like I, I do want to I do envision stuff like read I really am that's uh, mm -hmm. something that I didn't envision myself but something I'm very enthusiastic about and photography too which I, yeah. I'm very passionate about and I think I will have to balance because I'm a person that I can't see myself completely giving myself to academia mm -hmm. likewise I can't see myself completely giving myself to photography or the creative yeah. sphere do you think it would be beneficial for, I guess, for staff as well, but for students to have more of this sort of merging of um, life sciences, any sort of hard science, and also the more creative side of things, so the photography 100%. and the arts? 100%. Mm -hmm. I think science is just very creative. Like, if you think about it, like, how do you come up with a novel idea? And you have to. So even in your undergrad, mm -hmm. right, you have to think of something kind of novel. Sometimes you may be reliant on your supervisor or your tutor um, to come help you come up with that but you do so that level of um what's it called creativity is needed mm -hmm. so it's actually a prerequisite if you do not have that you will not be a successful scientist because you just yeah. can't think of anything outside of the box but that's what you need and it's it's kind of a central theme in anything creative um well in photography and art music mm -hmm. you just need that and um this helped me a lot and also it just helps in the outlet too to express yourself and I've, what i found is that i would say the vast majority of ecologists are artistic in certain way and even when i'm in mm -hmm. that for departments it's exactly the same way they have their outlet whether yeah. it, it be music art photography it's there so mm -hmm. i think there's this idea that scientists are not and they're like this very academic 
militant <laughs> books or poems, mm-hmm. but they're not. They're the very colourful people. And um, to answer your question, I think, yeah, definitely, like, I think it already exists, but I think maybe it needs yeah. to be a bit more of an emphasis and stuff like uh, mm-hmm. a perfect example that I was at an Explorers program for the Natural History Museum that does have, mm-hmm. I already know, um, Leeds. Um, anyone listening definitely check um her out and what she's doing at natural history museum she's a pioneer she's doing great things um but she set up um uh, another explorers event recently for black streamer mm. and it combined ecologists people in natural sciences with artists which is like yeah. this and it this beautiful melt so and it made it super it it merged so seamlessly and it created this environment in which engage the public because I feel like scientists really struggle mm-hmm. with engaging the public with what they're researching and what they're doing. Yeah. So it made it much more accessible and tangible. But also one thing which I think the creative field or creative spheres really um, are missing is actually that depth, like real depth mm-hmm. science. Um, information, factual information, actually, like impactful information, um, mm-hmm. has that automatically. And once you merge the two together, when you have a central theme of a particular piece of artwork or an inspiration, it's very easy. Like the two things, just, yeah, just are just, are just they're perfect together. And I think that's a testament to see like how naturalists back in the day always used to draw their model species. And that being a way of inspiring a level of awe and wonder to an extent where Charles Darwin's um, artwork now priceless and people yeah. as celebrated um, as the theory of evolution and origin of species. His, his mm-hmm. drawings are as celebrated to an extent. So it's it's just interesting how art has always wanted intersected and been woven within science as well as science being interwoven in art and serving as inspiration for art too. So So as we've mentioned, you've also um, founded the Read Network here at the BES. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what this network does? So the Read Network stemmed from me (laughs) being a black zoologist in academia. In the events of 2020, I got so I got an email from uh, a notable um, academic basically asked me what what should I do what can be done to fix the mm. diversity issues within zoology behavioral ecology um, evolutionary biology because he was the, I was the only person really or black person that he had taught I think ecology generally is the second least diverse sector. second least diverse sector yeah. and that's after cultural sector so effectively the two sectors are the same thing mm-hmm. <laughs> to do the natural world yeah. and they're two least diverse sectors and um something mm. that i wanted to fix to an extent and i realized i thought the best approach was representation how can you ever be something that you don't even ever see or aspire then to something that you don't ever really see it's very hard to kind of convince yourself and i realized that a lot of people like me who are like kind of kind of just arrogant pioneers they're going to do it anyways i'm going to do this because i want to do it and we're mm-hmm. just dotted around and i thought 
effectively creating a community, a space in which we can converse and speak about research away from the pressures of just being a, a, a minority, a marginalized group, and just literally be seen as scientists yeah. would be nice and also help as a, serve as a sense of um, motivation to continue, but as a byproduct of as a mm -hmm. representation that inspires individuals and be, uh, is that uh, uh, face of a, a different or a different face that you can attribute to ecology and it stemmed from that yeah. so it's a space for scientists or for marginalized groups and ecologists or people who are interested in the natural world um and um we provide opportunities um we act as a gateway effectively between mm -hmm. industry um organizations and um, zoologists, ecologists that may not necessarily come across these opportunities. And I think I touched upon it when I was 17 or 18. I was like, well, what do I do with a zoology degree? We effectively are a remedy yeah. for a situation like that. I think and that happens a lot with mm -hmm. undergrads too and, and master students where you leave, you, the world's your oyster and other voices are a bit larger saying, come in my direction, come, come. That's the law, that's business, the consultancy sector, the financial sector, um, the life sciences, more the pharmaceutical sector. Their voice is incredibly loud and they just take a lot of that talent because it is quite scary. There's a yeah. need to get money quite fast. And um, mm -hmm. the networks like this just are voice too. And our voice is getting louder, but where we also steer individuals that still have a passion for ecology and make and convince them that it's something that they can continue down i think yeah. examples of that are we've had five uh members include one including myself who have mm -hmm. um, gone down the route of ac the academic route got phds via scholarships associated with Glasgow, yeah. diversity scholarships i'm on diversity scholarship my scholarship at ucl um and um, others and really helping to utilize scholarships like that helping them um, um, giving them resources in terms of constructing a research proposal um, mm -hmm. as well as uh, ins inspiring them installing a level of belief that I think is inherent in other groups yeah. and other cultural backgrounds but it's a, a bit less so um, if you're a minority or if, um, if you're a woman too we just don't have them all in mm -hmm. inspiration or self-belief and yeah. networks and this community like that just does that but away from academia very much just being a hub of enthusiasm mm -hmm. creativity we have a lot of wildlife photographers um producers and that's a new world natural history film filmmaking yeah. that is a new world that i wasn't necessarily familiar with but was also quite exciting and steering people down that route and making it much more accessible because they deal with mm -hmm. exactly the same issues within academia and just effectively the whole ecological sector is just incredibly just not very diverse and yeah. um, that's what the network is sense of community for individuals mm -hmm. and marginalized groups within ecology enthusiasts about enthusiasts of ecology but also um providing opportunities and uh, a level of support for individuals on our members in various different ways. And now yeah. developing workshops and 
um, teaching others, whether it be allies, about how to be an effective ally, uh, mm-hmm. uh, decolonizing the curriculum, etc., and platforming our members in a way that isn't just the, let's say, the theme is just about race and diversity. It's about the research and seeing as a scientist, yeah. not as a black scientist, as brown scientist, um, but as just a scientist and just having conversations. Yeah. So one of the network's aims is to um, break barriers that impede black ecologists. Um, what do you think these barriers are? What do you think the main barriers are to black ecologists? I think ecology, there is a running undertone of classism, mm-hmm. elitism, privilege that the attributed just being in an ecological sector. It doesn't pay as much. Mm-hmm. That's just an automatic barrier to individuals from the working class and low socioeconomic background. Mm-hmm. Black people um, are more likely to be from a lower socioeconomic background. So it's by default, you're almost automatically barred from considering yeah. ecological oriented job. And I think a lot of individuals, when I speak to them, scratch their heads like, oh, I don't understand. We're doing all these things and, you know, none of them, no no black people are really applying to ecological oriented jobs. I'm like, well, a lot of these jobs roles are internships that pay pennies worth, mm-hmm. uh, free work experience. And even if it is a job, you're competing with another internship, let's say, if you get an internship at JP Morgan and get paid six grand for eight weeks, you science can't compete with that and what happens is that you get that black scientist who is enthusiastic about ecology and life sciences but then you have like sustainable especially with this sustainable focus they're mm. eating up all <laughs> all the biologists and zoologists ecologists yeah. now and um it's very hard to compete against that so that's definitely a barrier so i would say that's one barrier but i think one of the biggest barriers is a sense of self-belief and community mm-hmm. um, and um, a lot of regardless of what I said a lot of people don't see even if they're in a situation in which it's very difficult financially they find a way a lot of people mm-hmm. find savvy ways of dealing with that because that's all you've known that's all you've known and maybe you want to escape to an extent but if you love science that may be your escape route and it's just providing the support um, and sense of community and self-belief that yeah. you don't necessarily get when you're navigating a field like ecology as a black student you just don't get mm-hmm. that and yeah. it's just doing that and it's no fault of the sector because I feel like professors and everyone's very liberal space and they feel like they try to coddle you and help you but it's like this internalized feeling of um, not really being accepted I think yeah of cultural differences it's not a space that is malleable yet that can fit around anyone yeah it's, it's a certain archetype or stereotype that you have to adhere to mm-hmm. as an ecologist rather than ecology kind of just f- forming around you and you'd be like oh yeah. wow like it's a bit like thinking like a doctor like there's an idea of what a doctor is but in my idea my my idea of a doctor there isn't like a particular race or stereotype it's like I've seen so many different colours yeah. and races and genders of doctors that it's like, oh, you can just be a doctor and just fit a- around that and that'd be cool. Yeah. And I think ecology just isn't there yet. 
so I would say that's one probably one of the biggest barriers as a black person is that um, that lack of community and that self belief, mm-hmm. um, and also that the the, the financial uh, barriers too. That is also yeah. a big barrier. So as a student now, but also having worked within um, science sectors, do you think that there's anything? The broader community can do to better support black ecologists into staying in ecology or even taking it up at um you know in a university environment um install spaces that uh make you feel less burdened by being a minority mm-hmm. uh, i think my cousin just joined oxford university and something so small they that they did is that they um, before starting the university, and I think Oxford are very self-aware in that a lot of the students at Oxford come from a very privileged background. Yeah. And if you're from, uh, if you're from a low social background, if you went to state school, you just automatically feel excluded from those spaces. Mm-hmm. What they did is that they created spaces before starting term that got individuals from those backgrounds into spaces to the first year undergrads, and they just made friends and they were band yeah. together. So once you start the university, you aren't, don't feel isolated. You have that level of support. It'd be interesting to see the data after in terms of uh, retainment mm-hmm. in academia, but also this is thing that's happens in, that's uh, affecting all these big um, Russell Group institutions in that everyone, if everyone stayed, if you standardized it, you've got a black student, brown student and a white student, all got the same grades in A-level. They, brown and black students do, see, and and women too, regardless of race, do worse compared to that male white student. And they don't know, trying to find a reason as to what, whatever it is. And I just think it's because just the environment, it's very hard to shift the environment to make it malleable um, yeah. to the person rather than the person being malleable to the environment. But also just show, show me the money. Like it's anything <laughs> in the room. Yeah, We live in a capitalist society. And okay, yeah, there are definitely the issues of capitalism in general. But if you live in a capitalist society, money talks. Yeah. And a lot of these times, where people are trying to find initiatives and they skirt around the elephant room, which just needs funding. Yeah. Scholarships, like um, orientated and support um, mm-hmm. around helping individuals that might not necessarily um, have um, that level of support. And I think you do have to have a level of, uh, like, class policing. So mm-hmm. even if you're an ethnic minority, you can still be from a privileged background. And I think what mm-hmm. happens is that, okay, you uh, um, control for the race aspect of things or the marginalised aspect of things, but you don't control for the class aspect of things. You just see the same level of hierarchical stuff that comes in. And you push down people who are from a low social background. So I think there needs to be two levels of control mm-hmm. and that will help a lot, I would say. Um, and um, just helping networks. So yeah. instead of thinking on starting from scratch, and that is hard, I know that from experience, helping networks like Reed, helping networks like um, Black um, Women in Science, helping mm-hmm. networks, collaborating with groups like Flock Together that have... Um, really uh, figured out the formula of engaging with 
young people and making science and ecology and natural world really cool. So that, but they don't necessarily have that level of expertise um, or that um, that academic career path installed into their methodology yet. Working with organisations like that, they've done all the groundwork. All you have to do is just provide them with level of support, collaborations, yeah. and then you'd that you'd see things change very quickly. But yeah, definitely like unplugging Reed Ecological Network, but definitely working with Reed. Yeah, <laughs> so, <anyone laughs> listening, please. We're um, gonna have an advert at the end of this. Yeah, just like. <laughs> Like subliminal messaging. Subliminal messaging. I'm just gonna say, join the Ecology Network. It's just like (laughs) every ten seconds. Like, so Ruben, as someone who's stayed in ecology, are there any aspects of your experiences as a black ecologist that you'd like to share to encourage others either to remain in the field of ecology or maybe to take it up as part of their studies? The wonder that comes with being an ecologist, and when people hear that what you're doing. I like, I love, I love that. Where yeah. I'm doing this or I'm a zoologist. It's like, oh, wow. They want to know more about that. There's an interest in that. Um, I think that's one of my biggest things that like drives me to, wow, that's interesting. But also too, inspiring and teaching and interacting mm-hmm. with the natural world and yeah. about the natural world to young people, to old people, to anyone. I love that. And there's a passion that, I, I become impassioned and very passionate about stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and also you get to, you just travel a lot, Matt. If you love traveling, this is yeah. the deepest career. Like if you are very comfortable being in different environments, let's say I may be in Paris in November and then um, Toulouse for another conference and then America for another thing and then maybe get asked to do a talk in a Nordic country or go to Germany, Australia, like this is something that's just very much a, re- a reality for me. And yeah. even in just the science fields, space fields, if you love traveling, this is definitely something that's good, great. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you just meet a lot of interesting people who, who are very from interesting backgrounds. And I think that's the biggest kind of advert for being an ecologist is that if you love the natural world, you love traveling, then this is definitely a field for you. And what happens is that all your friends become dotted all around the world. So you always got a place to stay. Like, <laughs> lucky enough that all of my friends are social anthropologists and some people are ecologists and they do their field work or they go away for like a year. Everyone's dotted around the world, South America, North America, India. Okay, wow. Like, so if I want to go to India and I've got a place to stay, like, that's just nice to have. And just having people dotted around the world doing interesting things just makes you a much more well-rounded person as well as yourself. Yeah. You just see the world and experience different things and um, doesn't keep you in one single place. Mm-hmm. I like that. Some people don't like that, but I like that. I love that level yeah. of freedom. Have you got a favourite memory from your experience in ecology? The first memory that popped into my head was Pyrenees. So I got to do some mm-hmm. field work in, in the Pyrenees, which was paid for. So anyone who's a zoologist ecologist... I did not not have money for Operation Wallace here and stuff like that, which cost yeah. like three grand. So I had, I like, yeah. and I was like, there must be something free. I was like convinced by it, and I was like refusing to pay for anything. I was like, I'm one mm-hmm. at least I get paid, yeah, something or it's like subsidized or some something. And I found something where like like I knew I'd find it. Everyone's looking for research assistant jobs, and there's something that's circulating around 
the department. So if you're at university and you're an undergrad or master student, definitely speak to buddy up with professors because mm-hmm. um, they hear if you do great. I know oh, this person, this institution is looking for research, like a master student undergrad. They, they'll pay yeah. for expenses to collect data. So that's why I did. It's a funny story. So I have like, well, back then I, I hated plants. I didn't, did not want to do <laughs> That was one of the main reasons why I did zoology too, which I don't really say, is that I just didn't want to do biology because I know I can't deal with plants. I hate plants. So I was like, okay, no, solely zoology. And then I saw the, the thing they're looking for a research assistant for mm-hmm. um, a project collecting snapdragon samples. Yeah. So I saw Snapdragon. I was like, oh, that must be a lizard species. <laughs> so I was applying. I was like, send this email. And um, the postdoc at the time was like really like enthusiastic. Oh, wow, this yeah. guy is really enthusiastic about this. He's like, it's a bit weird. He's a zoologist, but like super enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. So I was in a call and back then we were using Skype and we were Skyping. And I was in my um, second year room. And I remember he was speaking about Snapdragons. I, I, thank God I spoke first. I pledged my case. Oh, this is why I want to do this, blah, blah, blah. I see this and this yeah. and this. And he started speaking. So, okay, cool. Yeah, you seem like a private person. A lot of people replied, but you seem like a really enthusiastic. It'd be great to have you. And I was like, and he's speaking about Snapdragons. Oh, yeah, you'd be collecting the samples in the morning. And you, we go, we, we have to be effectively, you're in the mountains um, in the mm-hmm. Pyrenees, so the border between France and Spain. He was describing like collecting these samples. I was like, this does not sound like trying out lizards. It's like one, we're gonna kill these lizards too. <laughs> like, how am I gonna collect all these lizards like in this area? I was like, what the hell is this guy speaking about? He was talking and then I was like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was getting another tab open and typed in Snapdragon to Google and all these flowers came. I was like, like what's <laughs> going on? So I was like trying to style it out, like, oh my god, I to, I'm collecting plant samples. For six weeks, it was it was six weeks. Yeah, a whole of my summer, and obviously when you're twenty, and summers are expensive, and you have to like really value them and do something that you want to. So I was like, oh, okay, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to the Pyrenees, so I just mm-hmm. saw it that way. Everything's everything's sub, everything's paid for. I don't get paid, but food, boarding, flights, all paid for. Yeah, um, I'm just gonna do it. So when. Got a train from Barcelona. No one spoke a word of English, especially when you go to the rural areas of Spain. And I was just staying in, in this massive villa in the mountains. It's really remote. You know, top, so you saw a cloud hug the hilltops. And they'd go over you too. The air was so crisp and clear. It was so quiet. Big, vast, like, forests. And you see mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. Like, it's great. Um, and then we had to cook up all, all our own food. So you had to go to local produce and Spanish yeah. produce. And I had to make, I made red Thai curry from scratch from me, like grinding out intestinal water. Finally, I think I even ground up some coconut for the coconut milk. This is mm-hmm. crazy. Um, and just being in that environment. But other than that, like collecting the samples was hell. Mm-hmm. The first week was, it was probably one of the hardest weeks in terms of work I've ever had to deal with. And I've worked a lot of crap jobs, but just, I've never been so tired waking up at six field it mm-hmm. being like 34 degrees because of the heat wave coming back in the afternoon eating yeah. going back out in the evening coming back at seven drying out these samples to nine eating going to bed at 12 and doing that yeah for six weeks and i remember and you didn't get days off 
yeah, no, we didn't get there's no weekends off. So I was I thought that was crazy to me. Um we mm. got maybe one day off because obviously they were on a tight schedule and needs to get all these samples. They need to get like two thousand. Well, we cut four thousand samples within six weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, they were there for two months, but I was only there for six weeks. And um I just remember thinking like I remember the first week and I was break at breaking point because I was so tired. And I'm I called my mum and my mum she grew up, she was born in the UK, but she, she, that's my Jamaican root side. So if anyone knows Jamaican culture, they know, like, you can't quit. So I was calling my mum, I was like, mum, I've never quit my life, but I was like, this. <laughs> this is, I, I was, like, nearly crying. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. This is crazy. I did not sign up for this. And two, like, I don't even like plants. And I was, I was the only zoologist. Everyone was plant scientists, botanists. And I was like, what am I doing here? I was just, I'm being so tired. She's like, you don't quit. You know, uh, Brooks don't quit. Jamaicans don't quit. Da, 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 da. And this is when she starts speaking bad to her. I was like, okay, fine. No. You know, you know I, one, I can't deal with this aggro. So even if I come back home, I'm just going to, for the whole summer, I'm just going to be like, I can't da, 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 in my pit. So I was like, you know what? This is my source of inspiration to stay. Yeah. And by the third week, I remember, because it's like a, a conveyor belt of um, undergrads. And you had basically all the undergrads did the grunt work, and then you got some master students too, and then special PhD students that were there using the data, but obviously helped out for maybe a few weeks on that. Um, and then, um, yeah, I remember being at the end, being like this veteran because you get all these scars on your arms because you have to go through like thistle and nettles because they um, the snapdragons are located on Mount on like the cliff yeah. face. Down. We didn't have any, we only had high vis vests mm-hmm. and like, cones on the road. We walked on these long roads in the mountains, these yeah. long bypass roads. And then scale up and down. I remember falling actually, slipping down a cliff. Ruben, this is supposed nearly, to be your I, happiest ecology memory. I know, I know, but it's, that's why, this is what, why I find it so happy is that like, I don't think I'd ever do something like that again, but. The memories I got from that, like the experience of like collecting and doing real science, right, was so unique, and it makes for funny stories like this, yeah. right. And I think that's what science and ecology is like. I think if you speak to any ecologist, they're filled. They're going to have funny fieldwork experiences. Hard, yeah. like it was. There's a hard time in their lives, but it, 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 it's used as a way to really like make you much more well-rounded person mm-hmm. and. It, it adds to the plot, adds to your own plot <laughs> in a way. So it's it's great, and that's why it's a happy memory. And it's my the first memory that always pops into my head when people ask me, like, and everyone finds it funny, and everyone one gets inspired, especially students. I kind of want memories like that, yeah. like being in the mountains and the sights I saw, sunsets, um, that I got so desensitized to. But well, sometimes when you looked up, you're like, oh, well, that's really beautiful. And seeing hawks fly over um, massive tree range, like ranges, uh, forest ranges and valleys, and being on rivers that were so secluded that you don't, you might have been the first person in decades to have walked through there. Um, these are things that. You only really can do once in your life. You might as well do it. 
So we're coming to the end of our podcast today. I've got final two questions that I've been asking everybody for this series. So first of all, do you have any role models both in and out of ecology? Um, I have notable people in my life. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a role model that I want to aspire to be like them because if I'm being, to put bluntly, there isn't like a black zoologist. Mm-hmm. When I typed in black zoology in Google, like nothing came yeah. up. So I was like, okay, fine. I'm just going to have to like make this idea of what I envision my life yeah. to be like and what I would like to be like. And what I do, which it would be interesting to hear other minorities mm-hmm. too, is like pick bits of people and then you have like this like, if you had like a picture, like see people have role model pictures of yeah. them all. It's like different people and it's like this amalgamation of this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I like this because you don't really see like black people doing things in which you envision yourself doing. Yeah. And um, what I've done is I've taken pieces of people in my life. I was really thinking about this that have been like very notable to me and have really like been things about them that I'm like, okay, I, I need to copy. I need to do exactly that. An aspect of my first serious relationship mm-hmm. with my girlfriend in third year and second year of university, mm-hmm. I think she installed into me order. Yeah. And something that I took from her was like order and having note-taking and that being important. I'm very much blasé and going with the flow of things, yeah. but having that sense of order is needed if you want to be a successful person. Mm-hmm. The second person, I would say... This person, my first when I was in a pharmaceutical job, and it was my un, my you know undergrad um, graduate mm-hmm. job, and this guy called Jordan, and he led. He was loved. Yeah. He led by example, and his work ethic and what he had done was regimented, but like Chris was novel mm-hmm. for outside the box. Acted as acted as a, a base of support. Yeah but led by example and people wanted it was inspiring to see that it's like wow like even if it's the simplest thing you can do that and that's something that I talk to it's like another piece of my picture I think third was my manager too my old job in research I think that was my first exposure to research and she even though she was finishing her PhD she was so eloquent. She could articulate any emotional thing in such a beautiful way that was so concise but clear mm-hmm. and communicated exactly what was needed and required. And that's something I struggled with. Yeah. I tend to ramble and tre- tend not to hone my ideas into this singular kind of pathway. She helped me with that, something that she had done so seamlessly. I was like, something I just talked to. And I think my last one is, um, there's two people at the moment. Yeah. Um, well, a few people, there's like my parents too, that always add to the picture. But also um, my supervisor currently, who is just this beacon of intellect that is just almost quite intimidating, that I wish I could be mm-hmm. like in body. And um, another colleague of mine, Meg, and her teaching, she's probably one, she's taught me, but also um, is a colleague because I did one of her yeah. modules. And how she teaches students and undergrads 
her approach to teaching is something that I would love to emulate. Mm-hmm. I think she's she's perfected it. She creates, she articulates very complex subject areas in a way, in a powerful way, which is very easy to digest. Mm-hmm. But also um, thinks outside the box, allows discussion, and in, in, creates an environment in which people can really think and talk yeah. and discuss um, subject areas and that's something I was, I was just like amazed by because I didn't think you could approach le- like lectures mm-hmm. like that or teaching in an academic institution I just had never come across that in that way and she, no one had taught her it was just something that she just it was just a talent of hers and it's like wow yeah. that's something that I need to cultivate in myself and then finally um, are there any black ecologists or groups whose work um, you admire that they may be doing now or have done in the past um, that you'd like to shout out? Black ecologist groups. Oh, the one that keeps coming to my mind is Flock Together. It's not necessarily like oriented around like academic um, ecology, but it's more about engaging with the natural world. Um, mm-hmm. I feel at the front lines is which is a bit more important. I think a lot of of these groups still, especially the ecological network, which we're trying to change a bit too. There's, this, there's mm-hmm. more of an emphasis of individuals who are who are already in academia, who are already students or yeah. undergrads, who are already interested in that within, and that's cool. But what's also as important is inspiring individuals into considering that, mm-hmm. whether that be adults, children, teenagers, and creating a sense of community, and actually doing like going out into the world and just interacting with the world. And I love that. I love that, what they're doing. Um, I um, become friends with Ollie, who's the creator. And um, we plan as a ecological network to work together in the future, but definitely flock together at the moment. It's something that um, I'm very, I'm, I think it's, it's really cool. It's a really cool organization. Perfect. Ruben Fukuya Brooks, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's been a real pleasure. No, it's been great, Amelia.